0: interesting to see how in America when a climate disaster strikes there is an understanding that we have harmed the earth but I think that when we talk about we we have to be very specific and like exactly the systems that in which we're operating in have been hurting the planet the people and the animals like wow how did we let ourselves get to this point as a global society to be doing these types of harmful practices
1: I'm Erin Stone, climate emergency reporter for LAist. Brian, as you may know, is on a special trip to Mexico. So today, I'm taking over how to LA. So at this point, we're all well aware that climate change is an ever-growing threat to our lives and our environment. We've seen the mounting evidence over the years, and it seems to just be getting worse. A recent report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change last February projected that hundreds of millions of people could die in the coming decades from natural disasters exacerbated by the preventable warming of our planet. There's not an easy way to say it. The future at times looks grim. And I'm not going to lie. As a climate emergency reporter who's surrounded by this information all the time, I can find myself feeling overwhelmed and a little paralyzed. But today, we're talking about how this mentality is actually really toxic and might be part of the problem.
0: I like to define climate doomerism as the pathway of ecological destruction due to anthropogenic actions.
1: In case you missed it, that's a definition of a concept called climate doomism. Can you break that down? (laughs) It's the belief that the damage to our climate has been done and might be irreversible. So basically, there's nothing we can do about it. The major issues with this mindset are that it allows people to evade responsibility and helps preserve the status quo. It's kind of like surrendering to the systems that got us here in the first place.
0: What better way to actually just to now disempower people to just to say, well, it's too late to change anything.
1: This is Isaiah Hernandez.
0: I am an environmental educator and the content creator of Queer, Brown, Vegan.
1: He's a 26-year-old UC Berkeley graduate, born and raised here in LA.
0: Specifically in the San Fernando Valley region,
1: an area we should note that's been overburdened by environmental pollution for decades. Isaias is part of a group of mostly young people who are fighting against this idea of climate doomism, which they say leads to us feeling powerless, checked out, and kind of paralyzed.
0: After realizing that a lot of people don't really connect to the climate crisis, and that's just because we all have different interests and favorites, and I think that we need to be able to connect them together to build this larger piece narrative that we're doing out here.
1: He started making content as Queer Brown Vegan on Instagram and TikTok in 2019 when he was 23.
0: How do we navigate burnout during the ecological crisis? Cargo ships globally are the dirtiest climate polluters out there and are often not talked about in climate... ...letting ourselves feel like the end is over and we are so powerless lets our oppressors win.
1: And as his name suggests, his work also sheds light on the huge lack of diversity in the environmental movement and how this is a key problem when it comes to developing actual solutions.
0: I always thought I'm not smart enough to talk about these things, but slowly and surely as I started to kind of question, like, okay, why is it that poor people like me don't have clean air, or we're told we can't drink the water, or we don't have even a backyard so to grow a garden.
1: The thing was, he didn't see a lot of people that looked like him asking those same questions.
0: A lot of times when we think about environmentalists, we think about white people. We think about, you know, Greta, David Attenborough, Jane Goodall, which they're all amazing environmentalists. It's not to say they're the issue, it's to say the fact of, like, how much racial biases do we carry in a society? Questions to me kind of led to curiosity, and that curiosity led me to become an innovator to start to say, you know what, like, I am tired of listening.
1: So today we're meeting Isaiah at one of his favorite restaurants in Canoga Park. Follow your heart. Hello. Yeah. Nice. This is Meg I'm I'm, 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 nice. Isaiah. And yes, this I'm, is a vegan. Restaurant. I'm stoked, I've been wanting to try this place for a while because I love their cheese. Yes. Oh. Like I get their like fake American cheese. Oh, <laughs> Are you God. vegan? No, but I used to be. But yeah, Isaiah isn't your stereotypical yeah. vegan
0: those interactions with sometimes PETA vegans <laughs> that tell you like, you're a horrible person, you're an animal murderer. And I didn't really understand why they were so angry and very interrogative. And so when I actually decided to go vegan, I told myself, look, I'm graduating college. I wanna do more for the environment, for the people and for the animals. And I saw veganism as a way to kind of understand my lens of compassion. Yep, can nice. I get the <laughs> large Caesar salad and then can I add the grilled daring chicken and then some garlic bread on that? Thank you so much.
1: Oh wow, okay, there's so many great options. I need some veggies. I need a lot
0: more veggies. My veganism isn't about getting people to go vegan, it's about to go plant-based or to explore those theories of animal liberation.
1: So I'm sitting here at Follow Your Heart Cafe with Isaiah Fernandez.
0: Yeah, thank you for having me.
1: It is such a pleasure to meet you and we are going to dig into some pretty heady difficult (laughs) topics.
0: We're really going to follow our heart today.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So tell us a little bit about, you grew up in the San Fernando Valley. How did your own kind of personal experience direct you to this work?
0: So I grew up in poverty. I remember my earliest years we lived in Section 8 affordable housing. At a young age you don't recognize that you're poor. but I think my interest really started when I realized that a lot of my health status within my siblings and myself was actually being correlated to a nearby factory and realizing that I didn't have any power as a child to say I cannot move out of this environment. And the reason is that I have to stay always inside home is that my parents feared the pollution and there was no green spaces. In middle school, when a lot of wildfires were happening in Los Angeles region, and the term global warming was coming out, and I started to think, like, how does this really relate to who I am as an individual? And so I think asking questions and getting trouble in the classroom, <laughs> but it allowed me to actually build this knowledge of environmentalism to say, I really love the planet, and I love the Earth. I always loved Geo, I love Discovery. But I never saw myself in those media spaces, so I said hopefully one day I can be there. That's what really got me in my journey today.
1: That's a really profound experience to realize that this is why I can't go outside, you know, and I don't have a choice here as a child, whatever your family's situation is.
0: My earliest memories, I would say, like when I was a teenager in middle school, my dad is a landscape gardener, and I'd work with him in Beverly Hills, Bel Air, Pasadena with some of his clients. And I remember this very clear example is that we went to this very rich, affluent home. I remember raking up some of the leaves back then when we had a fall season. And I remember one of the the kids come out. He's my age. And he asked me, why are you working? And I said, well, I don't have money. Like, I have to support my dad. My dad takes me by force. So I don't really have a say. And he asked me, like, what is your life like back home where you live? And I said, oh, I live here in Los Angeles. He's like, where, though? Why would you be doing this? And that put into context to me of him saying, like, do you have a backyard? And, you know, it wasn't to be insulting. And I said, no, I don't even have a backyard. We live in an apartment. There is no green spaces where I live. And so I felt really ashamed. That was probably the first time I realized, like, yeah, I definitely don't live in an environment where I don't have green space. And I started to realize all of where I lived is concrete. There's no trees. There's no flowers. There's no wildlife. And that, to me, was a reminder that there is lost ecological knowledge in these low-income neighborhoods because we are not exposed to these things. They were not told that we should have an option to have these green spaces.
1: So I'm just going to jump in here for a sec. These neighborhoods that Isaias is referring to, this didn't happen exactly on accident. Starting back in the early 1900s, redlining and other historically racist zoning laws pushed communities of color to these areas with the most industry and least green space. That legacy is still here today. Even here in LA, the places that have the most trees, parks, and the things that we all think make living in a neighborhood great are really lacking in neighborhoods that are primarily home to people of color with lower incomes.
0: That's kind of like the moment where questions to me kind of led to curiosity. To start to say, you know what, like I am tired of listening. I'm now ready to start to ask questions and start to educate other people around me because if poor people like me had this growing up, I wonder how many other poor people like myself have these same questions, but we're so embarrassed to speak about it because we don't have the degree, we don't have the quote unquote experience. We typically don't look like the people that are called environmentalists.
1: So I wanna get into this climate doomism and privilege thing a little bit more. Your role as an educator, right? So what, what do you see as wrong about the narrative that we're all kind of bombarded with in this situation?
0: Basically what climate doomism looks into the Anthropocene era, which is the era in which we've emitted the most emissions. It really illustrates that, well, the Anthropocene era is the human era. Human era is emissions, therefore humans are the virus. Humans are the issue.
1: Okay, translation. Isaias is talking about what some scientists and climate educators are starting to call this unofficial era we're living in when humans are majorly influencing our global climate. And the issue with this and how it relates to climate doomism is that it puts the blame on sort of everyone but no one at the same time.
0: There is an understanding that we have harmed the earth but I think that when we talk about we, we have to be very specific and like exactly the systems that in which we're operating in have been hurting the planet, the people, and the animals.
1: But Isaiah says this is why it's important to be really specific about the different harms that different communities experience. We don't always make the connection between the climate crisis and racial and economic struggles, but people like Isaiah lived it. And this is why he says we need diverse voices in the movement. We need to hear how different communities experience it and confront it. Why is it so important to center, to to really value lived experience just as much as like kind of research traditional science environmentalism?
0: I think one thing to know is how Western science models operate. They're very rigid, meaning that there's no really room for storytelling. We have generally accepted as Western science models as the end-all be-all and ignoring a lot of indigenous science, which a lot of indigenous communities have always said that they have the solutions to the climate crisis, which they are still doing that, but they need the funding, they need the resources, they need the amplification. And for myself as an environmentalist, I think including my lived experiences from studying environmental science really helped a lot of low-income communities of color specifically latin people to really relate to my story to say traditionally i don't see myself in this field and you realize more and more that you talk to different environmentalists is that the more that we have diversity of thought and research the more that we actually can relate to each other and that's to me is what showcases like our compassion and humanity
1: like Isaiah's, like me as a journalist a lot of us here in LA who create content that way too much used word we don't want to add to a lot of the climate doomism because as you just heard it can be really problematic right, so right what do we do do you have any advice for Aaron as a climate emergency reporter like on how to move forward without this apocalyptic mindset in a way
0: adding resources at the end of every article if possible because me as a a reader I'm like well what do I do what do I support and as much as I can just make a same video of what you just written I'm saying well this is the problem and there's no resources what did I do I just created more stress for people who are like oh another crisis that I need to deal with but I can't even afford my rent right now so what how can I help
1: yes yes I appreciate that very much (laughs) and working on it
0: I feel that one of the ways in which I've been able to really heal a lot of my past pain and like my past trauma is to create content with the idea that it's going to give back to a younger person of color, to know that like, yes, there are people that look like you that are doing this work. Is it hard? Yes. But I will make sure it's easier for you when you get to my age, you know, in order to really sustainably love ourselves in this movement and continue doing the work, I think we need to kind of take time to just evaluate the cycles that we feel unloved and loved and hated. So then we have a better heart in approaching those issues rather than being like, no one understands me, let me just tackle this solution, gun hard, and then you burn out and then you're out of the movement. That's what happens with a lot of people. When I present a problem to my community, I sit down with them and I say, look, I don't even know what we're doing either. So let's talk about it. And I think when that those dialogues come out, you'll realize like the rawest forms of individuals really come out of what they really think. And it's really amazing to say that when you give power, not to people, because they have already had it, allow them to step into their own power, we realize, wow, we're really gonna get through this together. And I think that to me is where the beauty of that true solution comes out from.
1: Okay, all that's it for today. That was Isaias Hernandez of Queer Brown Vegan. There is so much more to this important conversation than we were able to cover today in this episode. Check out Isaias' content on climate doomism, capitalism, racism, and all kinds of other topics in this sphere on Instagram and TikTok and on his website, queerbrownvegan.com. This episode of How to L.A. was produced by Megan Botell. And as far as those resources go, ideas for where you can turn and start working on meaningful change, we've got some stuff in our show notes. Okay, we're out. How to L.A. will be back tomorrow. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Aaron Stone.
0: Support for this podcast is made possible by Gordon and Donna Crawford, who believe that quality journalism makes Los Angeles a better place to live.